This podcast is produced by Benchmark Education. Equity. You want it for all your students, but how do you balance equity and differentiation in your reading instruction? And how does that fit into the conversation around the science of reading? I'm Kevin Carlson, and this is Teachers Talk Shop. Just like kids are not the same height, their literacy development pathways are different. So we have to make room for all different kinds of learners within a science of reading framework. That is Dr. Rachel Gabriel, author, ILA board member, and director of the Reading Language Arts Center at the University of Connecticut. Rachel also appeared in episode 25 of this podcast with Dr. Peter Afflerbach, The Sciences of Reading and the Whole Child. If you're interested, please do check that out. But here, author and educator Patty McGee speaks with Rachel about equity and the sciences of reading. When schools turn toward what science of reading has really been highlighting, which is phonological awareness, high frequency words, decoding, mm-hmm. um, and they put their attention on that, what will we see? Well, the first thing you'll see is um, teachers are going to spend a significant amount of time in training around those subjects. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that may be necessary, and in some, that may be kind of redundant for where they are professionally. Um, and then you'll see the item level knowledge in those areas, because those are finite uh, measurement areas. Mm -hmm. There's only a certain number of sounds. There's only a certain number of um, ways that we can assess uh, phonemic awareness. You'll see uh, scores on isolated measures um, go up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And depending on whether that instruction is well integrated with reading connected text and with writing, you may also see scores in reading overall or reading in general go up. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and to whatever extent that focus uh, is not well integrated with reading connected text and with writing, uh, you'll see just those isolated measures. So just measures of phonemic awareness by itself, not reading in general or reading comprehension, those will go up and others won't. And so that's that's been the story with a foundational skills focus forever. Mm-hmm. And there are some folks that say you've got to have that foundation and you have to build on it in order to ever get to real reading. But there's too much evidence at this point. So if we think of the science of reading as the accumulation of knowledge in the field, the accumulation of knowledge in the field says that isolated skills have to be integrated immediately. Otherwise you have what's called a problem of transfer instead of transfer. And um, that is true whether we're thinking about it in intervention um, or we're thinking about it as core instruction. Uh, We set kids up for a problem of transfer if we don't teach it in integrated ways and immediately integrated ways. After the break, the challenge with equity in the sciences of reading. Stay with us. Application and practice. These are the cornerstones of a new foundational literacy series from Benchmark Education, Decodable Fluency Builders. Your students will be immersed in a collection of carefully crafted fiction and nonfiction texts that combine phonics, high frequency words, and language comprehension work. You'll see your young readers accelerate from mastery to transfer in reading, writing, listening, and speaking. Two-sided teacher cards accompany each text 
to help you plan lessons. And you'll have on-demand professional development available 24-7 at Benchmark Academy. Guide your young readers towards comprehension with decodable fluency builders. Learn more at benchmarkeducation.com. So that brings us right then to our, the focus of our conversation around equity. Mm-hmm. So we know that it can be beneficial for those students that may need that type of instruction. Mm-hmm. And also, when, if we are putting all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak, um, there are things that can kind of go awry. Yeah, so, totally. So totally. thinking about those initial outcomes, perhaps we see some positive outcomes um, at the onset. Mm-hmm. What are some implications that you have been thinking about, though, around equity in the science of reading? So I think the big challenge um, with equity in the science of reading at the moment has very little to do with the science of reading instruction and a lot to do with um, the implementation of science of reading policies. And I don't mean just state policies, although there are some challenges there. I mean, even at the school level or at the classroom level, what we decide to spend our time on, what we decide to give students the most feedback and support with, um, and those sort of miniature policies that govern how the days and and hours are spent in a classroom can have differential effects on different people. So I think the, the story that brought Science of Reading so much public attention was that reading instruction in the US is broken and it should be this other thing instead. And the truth of the matter is there is no one story of reading instruction in the United States and there never has been. Mm-hmm. Every study that, is, that looks across a state or across several states, let alone across the country, tra- finds tremendous variation in what is taught and how. Um, Connecticut is maybe a good or maybe a bad example because we are a local control state, but I can walk through each district along the shoreline of Connecticut and I will see a different approach to reading instruction, K3, in every single district and in many cases they're separated by like five miles. So yeah. there, there was never this story where like all kids were learning to read the wrong way and science of reading is the right way and so this is going to help. So one of the equity issues is that asking people to make a shift toward a particular set of practices for some districts and states it's a huge shift and it requires a lot of resources a lot of time a lot of retraining in some places it's not a shift at all Um, in some places they were changing from basically kind of chaotic instruction it's the best word i can use to describe it where teachers are kind of reaching for things they don't have a structure to to land on they have to figure it out for themselves in their individual classrooms and in that case um, coming in with the science of reading and the sort of strict parameters of what is taught and how using what materials in what order it's actually a relief it's um it has a stabilizing effect it makes it so that people have a clear plan that they can work within and that gives them a structure within which they can be responsive to the students in front of them. But in other cases, uh, people had a pretty coherent set of ways of teaching reading. And that may be in a town five miles down the road or in some states more than others or in some districts more than others. All of that has some uh, equity implications. Um, But what we know about kind of mandated policy change is that it happens more frequently and more aggressively in lower resource schools. Uh. They're taken over, they're told what to do, and next year they're told what to do differently, and then next year they're told what to do differently. They also have this 
challenge of initiative overload as people are trying to fix them and or they're trying to fix themselves. So they're always working with a new set of tools for something, whether it's reading or math or social emotional learning, there's always this new set of tools. Sometimes there's layers of new sets of tools on top of each other. And so reading becomes um, one of six things that I'm trying to do new this year yeah. and or it becomes the one that seems the most straightforward and concrete. And I've got this sort of science of reading label on my curriculum material. So I'm going to teach them exactly as they are and rest easy with the idea that this is science. And so it's definitely going to work. And then the students in those classrooms have this kind of incoherent um, trajectory yeah. through whatever they were getting in kindergarten and first and second and third, and uh, that doesn't kind of connect and build on itself in a way that makes sense. Um, teachers are working in kind of an incoherent professional setting because they're getting they're being asked to do something different all the time, uh, rather than allowing allowing them to settle in and expand what they do in order to incorporate new information or. Uh, elaborate on what they do that works while they quietly sunset the things that don't work. Um, instead, the policy environment has been much more prescriptive in a new way um, and much more limiting. So the trend in the last five to 10 years was to give schools more of a menu of options. Here are a few examples or here are a few options of curriculum materials or curricular approaches and assessments that you can use. But the science of reading legislation that uses the term science of reading, which means it has to be less than five years old because that term wasn't floating around before then. Oh. Um, but that kind of umbrella term that's being used to describe a whole bunch of things by a whole bunch of different people is being written into state law at the moment uh, in many places it exists or is under discussion or will be under discussion. And these laws have this trend towards not just saying, here's what you should do, but also here's what you're not allowed to do. So really severely limiting um, what counts as good reading instruction. And no matter where you are on the spectrum of uh, possibilities for reading instruction, when that state law comes down, you have to fit into it. And again, for some students, this is change number 365 of the 365 changes they've had. Um, for some districts, it's a minor shift. And for some, it's a major shift. For some, they're having to let go of practices that worked for them in their communities. Yeah. And for others, it's actually the first time they've had a clear message about what they should be doing, and they really appreciate that. And that was the story that came out after the Reading First impact study said that Reading First was not, not overall a success. We got all these case studies of districts that said, actually, it was better than what we had because what we had was so incoherent yeah. and was so dependent on teachers to figure it out for themselves. Um, in places where teachers are empowered to be always on a trajectory of professional growth, um, telling them exactly what to do, kind of designing policy for the lowest common denominator um, limits their ability to innovate and be responsive. But on the um, other end of the spectrum, um, there are teachers whose real strength is in math or whose real strength is in loving children and they're not exactly sure what to do with reading instruction or they've been in a district where they've been told something different every year so they hold their knowledge lightly because that's the only professionally responsible thing to do in that situation. And having this sort of like, it's this, it's not that, there's no other way to do it. And I don't mean to characterize all conversations about science of reading that way, but the way state policy that uses that term is being crafted is that way. And so whatever else is going on with science of reading talk and materials and webinars and all of these other pieces, um, it's hitting schools 
as a very specific particular mandate. Yes, and with that particular mandate and that legislation comes PD that's focused on that and funding yep. that's mm -hmm. specifically for that. So there, it's not just, it's like waves of impact yes. um, yep. at the same time. And as you totally. said, there, there are places that will benefit from that and then mm -hmm. there's places that will not. And that's the equity conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the sort of one of the macro level equity conversations. Mm -hmm. um, I think about this particularly for teachers in terms of professional development because professional development time and resources is a zero sum game. So if you choose to spend it on reading or you have to because it's a new set of curricular materials, you cannot spend it on anything else. Mm -hmm. And so there's only training on new materials, which is a really simple, basic surface level training, not development, not expertise, elaboration, not collaboration, really just like getting trained to do this new thing, uh, which is a really simple, basic, not super uh, life-giving <laughs> uh, way to spend the precious time that's set aside for educators to learn together yes. and educators who learn together teach better and if we spend it on um, training on a new a new set of materials again and, and again in some places this is the first time they've gotten any word about what they mm -hmm. should do with reading but in others they had a new program five minutes ago yeah. or they had a program that worked well that they were breathing into and developing and making it responsive to the kids in front of them I worry about how little time there is for professional development during the week and in a school calendar and how much of it has to be taken up by sort of instrumental things. Mm -hmm. the, the new fire drill pattern, the new protocol for concussions. Um, I had one year that every PD that I was scheduled to do was interrupted by the ice bucket challenge. And like ice bucket challenge is awesome. It's a community builder, it's for a good cause. It's like, it like helps schools be part of the larger conversation, the larger world. I am not against an ice bucket challenge. But when we think about how there's like a certain set number of hours for teachers to be engaging in their own development, which directly impacts what they can do with their children. And we lose minutes and hours and to all of these things that are not actually developing pedagogical capacity. Mm -hmm. This is just one more thing that is taking up time where we could be developing pedagogical capacity and coaching has to focus on, are you using the new program well? And PLCs have to focus on unpacking the new program. It's all necessary, um, but not every school district and state needs it at the same time mm -hmm. or needs it focused on the same thing all the time. After the break, what can you actually do in your classroom to address issues of equity? Stay with us. Benchmark Academy, a new online professional development opportunity that gives you exclusive access to some of the top minds in education today. The Academy offers interactive and engaging step-by-step -step guidance for teachers of all levels through lively video classes bursting with information paired with research-based professional development books, multiple reflection opportunities, and comprehensive course support. Courses go deep into topics at the forefront of childhood education. A simple and efficient user interface, clear visual explanations of concepts, and real-world student examples make learning easy and enjoyable. Dynamic online classes paired with professional development books, study guides, and implementation guides will help you steer your young readers and writers to their highest potential. 
Learn more about Benchmark Academy at benchmarkeducation.com. Let's just maybe start to go down a road in response to this and in response to what you're saying. What can we do about this? Like the teacher in the classroom with their students, knowing that this is the reality, mm-hmm. um, perhaps in many, in many places, some teachers have a little more flexibility. What can we offer to teachers, educators who are listening, some things they can do within this? I think there's maybe sort of three places that you might want to lean into depending on your context and where this, where these new policies and where the new curricular materials or old curricular materials for that matter, um, find you in your own community and in your own practice and growth as a, as an educator. So if this is new, if, if the ideas within science of reading are new to you, the idea that uh, it matters that you teach uh, phonemic awareness and sight words and use some decodable text sometimes, um, if that's a new idea and you want to learn more about it, then like, this is your time and that's great. And what I would, <laughs> and what, what I would um, hope is that you understand these as foundational in the truest sense of the word, that this is the beginning, not the end of what has to happen with reading instruction. Mm-hmm. And so like, once you've got it, the next thing to look out for, and this is sort of a preview of teachers who may be on the, the next part of the, of the spectrum in terms of how this hits them. The next thing to look out for is how do we integrate? Once I understand sort of the most basic idea that this has to be taught in a certain sequence and it has to be taught, not assumed, um, that's, those are basically the two messages of science of reading right there. Once those two things are fully integrated into your knowledge base, the next question is how do I integrate them into literacy, not recognizing individual letters or recognizing individual patterns or words? How do I integrate them into the work of being literate? And that means we have to think about writing. And that means we have to think about how the isolated skills and the individual items that we're developing in children by helping them remember them and apply them are actually used to do something that matters. And used to do something that matters means writing something that they actually wanna say. So not copying, not dictating, but actually composing, even if that's the first sound of every word, even if that's just labeling their drawing, or if that might be phrases, sentences, paragraphs, and all like stanzas, all the things, uh, they have to be able to use that as soon as possible yesterday, if possible, but as soon as possible, they've got to be able to use that knowledge to write something that matters to them. And they have to be able to use that knowledge to read something that matters to them. And the challenge with decodable texts historically is that they often are too weird to matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I know there's lots of people working on decodable texts that are interesting, yes. um, but the truth of the matter is there are lots of texts around the world, around the classroom, around the school, outside in the park, like all of these texts around kids that they want to be able to read. And to whatever extent the texts that they are asked to read in school are like from another planet in comparison, um, it's gonna feel like there's not a real point to this except pleasing my teacher. Mm-hmm. But to whatever extent they're invited to, yes, read decodable text and see some of those words and letter patterns in other texts too that are read to them, that they're allowed to browse through, that they are allowed to read at different times during the day. No one's arguing for one or the other. The question is when and how much. And what I'm saying is if kids don't have exposure to text that they want to read, they will not want to read. And so there's no, like, that's not, that's also science of reading. We have like a huge science of motivation and engagement, a huge science around assent to learning in general. And if there isn't a real reason for it, there just won't be people who choose to use um, 
time that could be allocated in lots of different ways to read. Like I, I always tell my students about looking around when they're at the grocery store or where they're at Target or something like that and noticing the kids that are the age that they're still sitting in, in, in the shopping cart, whether they're looking at all of the words and pointing and trying and saying, or whether they're somewhere else in their minds, whether they're spaced out or looking down at one thing, but like thinking about all of the text exposure that you have just being out in the world if you're in tune to text versus the, the um, sort of opportunities lost if you aren't. You know, if you go to a restaurant and you try out looking at the menu and you match some things and figure it out, like that's uh, incredible practice that matters too because you wanna know what's there and you don't know what the options are. Um, if not, then that was just one lost incidental opportunity. And so when we bring in text that kids care about into our classroom, we're setting them up to have many more incidental learning opportunities. And literacy, when it builds, our language is, built in a way that like their literacy will self-extend they will recognize words they'll piece things together if they are taught in a explicit and systematic way they will be able to extend that but not if we don't show them where the extensions can happen yes so the middle folks who are like yeah i knew about phonemic awareness i knew i had to teach sight words i even knew i had to do them in a in a set sequence um, you may be excited to get a new set of materials. Maybe you're using the materials you always had. And what you really need to be thinking about is where is my integration work? Because integration is the actual entire <laughs> name of the game when we're thinking about developing print-based literacies. It's the integration of all the knowledge that you can bring to the words so that you can make them make sense. And folks that had a really well-developed practice that are saying, this is actually stripping me of opportunities to do the kind of innovative, creative, engaged, responsive, community-based project-related work that I have been developing over years with my colleagues, folks that have been in an environment where they are trusted and respected as educators, and it feels like they're getting some of that trust and respect taken away because their options are being limited. I think the message to them <laughs> is um, to be here now. So thinking about the focus right now is on the foundation and you know that there's a reason for it, that there is always going to be this sort of um, anxiety around literacy, literacy rates, literacy development, because uh, it matters so much that children have powerful literacies when they finish school. And honestly, by the time, actually not when they finish, but like for school purposes. And so there's always going to be this movement in one direction or another to make sure we're getting this right. So at the moment, we're focusing in on this area of literacy instruction, which is not the whole story. I don't know anybody serious who's arguing that it is, but the way the laws are written makes it seem like reading instruction is good if and only if it attends to the five pillars. So it almost doesn't matter what people are saying about it. The way the policies are written makes it seem like there's only a few things that matter at this moment. You know what's what matters beyond it. And so you can be modeling and talking about that integration. You can be naming and framing the work that you do that you have developed over a long period of time in the terms of the science of reading movement so that people understand what looks like what and how these different things can be. Because we really need people to help develop our collective imagination about what really good reading instruction can look like. And so take on the vocabulary, engage with the advocates and the parents and the other uh, leaders and educators that are really into this and focusing on it like it's really, really exciting and new. Don't dismiss that 
excitement, use it and use it, use it in a way that expands it and elaborates it so that there's room for more kids in it. Because just like teachers are going to be hit with this in depending on sort of where they are in their spectrum of development, kids are hit with this in different ways too. Some of them don't need that level of explicitness. Some of them need that and then some. This was always true. Like just like kids are not the same height, their literacy development pathways are different. So we have to make room for all different kinds of learners within a science of reading framework. And again, the science here has room for people. Yes. But the way it's being enacted is often so narrow that certain kids will always look like they need help. And certain kids will always look like they don't. And certain kids will always look like the help they need is actually tantamount to a disability label mm. and other kids won't. And there are inequities set up by this sort of narrow limited uh, approach to implementation that are just going to exacerbate every line of difference we already have. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a lot of English language learners, model and show us and use the language to stretch our understanding of what this can and should look like with them. If you have kids that are neurodiverse, model and show us and stretch our understandings about what this can look like for them. Because at the moment, it's a like shot through the middle kind of thing. Yeah. And that's not gonna be good for us as a community, as a collective. Thank you, Dr. Rachel Gabriel. Thank you, Patty McGee. And thank you for listening to Teachers Talk Shop. If you want to learn more about the science of reading, go to TeachersTalkShop.com and visit our archive. Episode 27 is The Sciences of Reading and Small Group Instruction with Dr. Adria Klein. Episode 26 is A Practical Approach to the Sciences of Reading with Dr. Cece Bates. Episode 25 is called The Sciences of Reading and the Whole Child, featuring Dr. Peter Afflerback and Dr. Rachel Gabriel, who you heard on this show. Episode 20, Expanding the Science of Reading, features Peter Afflerback. And episode 4 features Wiley Blevins and is called The Science of Reading, What Brain Research Says About How We Learn to Read. While you're on the site, please register to receive updates about the show. For Benchmark Education, I'm Kevin Carlson.